Well, friends, I'd like to direct your attention this morning to Isaiah chapter 45, verses 9 through 13. Isaiah 45, 9 through 13. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide in the seat in front of you, you will find that, depending on which edition, either on page 567 or 606. So uh, we are, again, Isaiah 45, verses 9 to 13. And we're continuing in our little summer series in Isaiah. I'm going to read our text Now, first, we're going to pray and ask God's blessing, then read our text and go from there. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for gathering us this morning to hear from you. Uh, We confess that our Redeemer Christ has done everything to uh, cleanse us from sin and to bring us near to you. And because we're your children, we want to hear your word. We want to hear you speaking to us. We pray that your spirit would stir up in us Uh, hearts that respond as we ought to to your word that would be uh, attentive and thoughtful and soft and and ready to be molded by your hand that your life-giving spirit would use the word to shape us to take away what ought not to be there and to build up what ought to be there and to make us more like christ we pray that you'd show us your glory in a way that transforms us that that leaves us different afterward than we were when we began We know that you have great things to do in our midst as your church through your word. You have life-giving things to do, and you want to make us fruitful in the knowledge of you. And so we invite you and plead that you would do that in our midst. Please give me faithfulness and wisdom and love to proclaim as I ought. And please give each of us ears to hear and do great things in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the word of the Lord. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. You may know this children's song. You may have grown up singing it. He's got the whole world in his hands. I won't sing it for you. You're welcome. He's got the whole world in his hands. As God's people, we understand that he's all-powerful. We understand that as verse 13 calls him, he's the Lord of hosts. The last week's sermon reminded us, as we looked at from chapter 44, verse 24, through uh, chapter 45, verse 8, we saw that he is the sovereign Lord of history. But sometimes as we see his hand of providence at work, we can struggle with accepting the choices that he has made. We can struggle with his right to do what he does to ordain what he does. 
If, as we read in verse 7, just two verses ago, he's the one who forms light and creates darkness, we sometimes find ourselves questioning, really, God? Why that darkness? Why that calamity? How can God possibly approve of this evil event occurring in history out there or nearer to my own life? How could this event ever fit into any kind of coherent plan of a wise and powerful and good God? Sometimes these questions can take on a darker strain, moving into the realm of outright criticism. And we're we're saying, as though with clenched teeth, how dare you do this, God? You have no right. How could you take away something so beautiful, so pure, so good, so promising, so cherished away from me or from someone I love? How could you? It's simply not the way it should be. Well, today God is going to address this matter of how we respond to his providence, his free, all-powerful government over his creation. This is now our third sermon as we've re-engaged Isaiah this summer. And at this point in the book, God, through Isaiah, has promised exile to his sinful people. But now, before that exile even happens in history, God is looking beyond it. He knows that his covenant people are drawn to other gods. That's a big reason that they're going into exile. So now he's telling them about how, after this exile, he will show his holy uniqueness by redeeming them. And last week we learned about how he'll save them using a surprising agent, a Gentile, the Persian king Cyrus. And this would happen about 160 years in the future from when these words were spoken. As as I mentioned before, in this part of Isaiah, we we need to have our eyes on two different things at once. In this latter part of Isaiah, we need to have chameleon eyes as we read Isaiah. You know what a chameleon's eyes are like? How do they work? They can move independently of each other. It's kind of freaky to see, you know, the two eyes. When we look at something, our two eyes track together. We look at the same thing with both eyes. Unless we go cross-eyed, I guess. But a chameleon can look at two different things at once. And this is what we have to do in reading Isaiah, this part of Isaiah. We keep one eyeball on the historical horizon, deliverance from exile back to the land, restoration of the temple in Jerusalem, and events happening through historical figures like Cyrus. And this all did happen in history in the latter part of the Old Testament. But then we need that other eyeball on another horizon, a more distant horizon, where these earlier events are pointing the way to a greater and more important event in the future. That God will raise up a greater anointed servant to carry on a greater redemption from a greater problem. Not just physical dislocation from the land, but really the problem, sin, that, under, that, that caused that problem, sin and its consequence of death. This redemption will cover a broader scope, not only affecting Israel, but all the nations along with them. And he'll carry it out at a far greater expense, the cost of his servant's own life given as a substitute for sinners. And this famously is predicted so clearly in Isaiah chapter 53, the the suffering servant giving his life as a ransom for many. Of course, a prediction about the death of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of these prophecies. 
So within that context, here we are. We're learning about this historical deliverance. And we heard last week about how God will use Cyrus for this nearer term historical redemption from exile. But that prediction stirs up some problems. And in doing so, it exposes a common struggle that afflicts the way we view God and the, the providence, uh, his providential ways, the ways that he rules. So what does the Lord have to teach us in his word today? It's first a word of correction, but then it leads to a word of comfort. And here it is. Our God's reign is free beyond challenge and good beyond question. Our God's reign. I'm talking about rain that falls from the sky. R-E-I-G-N. You know, the king reigns. Our God's reign is free beyond challenge and good beyond question. And we'll tackle this in three parts as we walk through our text. First, we'll identify the problem. And then we'll look at two different ways that God answers the problem. So it's one problem and then two solutions. Okay? The first thing we'll see is the problem in verses 9 and 10. Creatures question their creator. This is the problem. Verses 9 and 10. Creatures question their creator. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? So God has just said that he is the sovereign author of history and that he'll use this surprising agent, Cyrus, to redeem his nation. And then this text is basically a parenthetical aside where Isaiah hits pause on the main discussion to deal with an objection that he anticipates has arisen in the heart of his hearers. And that objection is, wait, wait, wait. God, what are you talking about? How could you use a conquering Gentile king as your savior for us? To better understand this objection, let's put ourselves in the shoes of an old covenant Israelite. And we might imagine this objection really stemming from two roots. The first one, as I pointed out last week, is it certainly raises eyebrows that God would call a pagan who doesn't know him my shepherd and my anointed. That's what he does in chapter 44, verses 28 and 45, verse 1. He calls Cyrus my shepherd and my anointed. God, what about the true anointed one, the true Messiah, the son of David? Isn't he supposed to be our savior? Isn't that what you've promised elsewhere, even earlier in Isaiah? Isn't our ticket out of exile the national revival and eternal kingdom that you've promised by covenant to your servant David? Now with us, who have the whole Bible in front of us, it's easy to overlook the heartburn and confusion that this wrinkle might introduce. We know, as I said last week, Cyrus stands as a type, a mere type of Christ, who was to come and bring a greater redemption to God's people. He is a foreshadowing picture of the greater one to come. But that relationship is still not clear to them yet. They're in the foggy middle of the story. And we have to sympathize with how this would look from where they're, they're sitting. So the first root of objection is just confusion about how God's stated purpose could match the greater plan of restoration that he's promised elsewhere. This is a sort of how does this fit issue. But the second root of their objection is less principled and more personal. And frankly, it is humiliating to be rescued by someone else. 
It's humiliating for a people who are supposed to be God's victorious chosen nation, who are supposed to be the ones steamrolling everybody else, to receive deliverance at the hand of pagans from the outside. It is humiliating that their restoration won't come uh, to them through their own, through, from, from themselves, under a Davidic Messiah, rising up and becoming a dominant empire and crushing their enemies under their feet. No, their restoration will be an act of charity, the fruit of someone else's conquest. No one wants to prosper this way. It challenges their, their self-perception and it violates their pride. And God illustrates the folly of these objectors using these two metaphors in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, they're like clay pots that gripe against their potter about his incompetence. And this is funny. This is a funny picture to read about. It's, it's ironic. How utterly backwards. Imagine this one pot and, and this, this line, a pot among earthen pots. You've got this one who's just in a pile with a bunch of other clay pots. He's ordinary. There's nothing special about him. And he takes a look at himself and how he was made. And he takes a look at the potter and he says, You incompetent fool. <laughs> what have you done? Now, our ESV translation about the, the pot, it's complaining about the lack of handles. The grammar is awkward, but many other translations, uh, such as the New American Standard, NIV, and King James, go with what's probably a better reading, saying, He, the potter, has no hands. It's like only a handless potter could make something so grotesque. It's like that's the accusation coming from the pot. And then the illustration in verse 10 communicates the same thing, but this time the image pivots from pottery to parentage. It's as impertinent as a child complaining to his father and mother about their inability to produce good offspring. What are you people doing? And now both of these verses take the form of a woe, which is supposed to sound like the, the sound you would make in a funeral cry. Now, the prophets often use woes to proclaim doom on someone. In this case, it's not quite that strong. It's more of a warning. That is to say, in this case, these woes are not proclaiming sure destruction, but really it's warning God's critics that you are dancing on a precarious edge. It's like what I call, I don't know what the name of this is, but the, the braille on the edge of the freeway, the little bumps that create that washboard effect, and you drift off into the shoulder, and you start feeling like, and, and now, it's not saying that destruction is inevitable. You're not about to hit a brick wall. But the rumble is a warning that you're getting dangerously close to an edge you don't want to cross. And that's what woe is doing here. Watch out with this kind of thinking. You are on thin ice if you are approaching God this way. What is wrong with this thinking? This is where we hasten to say that even though Israel are the historical people who give occasion for this warning, the problem that they exhibit is universal for God's people everywhere all the time. And fundamentally, the, the impertinent pot and the critical child are in error because they have reversed the proper order between themselves and the one they came from. They have reversed the proper order between themselves and the one who originated them. Let me put it this way. To complain about God's providential rule over history or over our lives is to forget the vast gulf that separates the creator from the creature. We look at verse 9 and we look at this pot and we say, what's wrong with you, pot? <laughs> what makes you think that you are competent to assess the potter's work? 
when you yourself are derived entirely from him. What makes you think that you can even understand what the potter was trying to do? And this is the exact same pathology that's at play when we forget ourselves relative to our creator God. Now let's admit, it's pretty easy to affirm theologically that he's got the whole world in his hands, that he has all power. But still, the things that he ordains can bother us. And it's just like Israel here, the same reason. Sometimes his providential acts confuse us. It's the how does it fit problem. We, we can't compute how the parts fit the puzzle. We can't understand how does this thing lead toward the ends that you have promised, that I know you're working toward. I cannot process how this could be consistent with the other promises you've made. Or like Israel, we could object to his plans because they're going to bring about his good ends through means that challenge us, that humble us, or yes, humiliate us. But we do well to ask, well, what is God's promised plan? What are we expecting him to do? For everyone who has received Jesus Christ in faith, we have precious promises from him about where all of history is going. He's the one who justified us and is conforming us into the likeness of his son. We hear about that in Romans 8, 29. He's bringing us to completion, the good work that he began in us, Philippians 1, 6. He's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He's leading us through resurrection into the glory of a new heaven and earth. This is Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. And we know that we will behold his glory in the face of Christ forever. We read about in 1 John 3, verse 2. These are the ends. This is where everything is going. They're glorious and they're beautiful for all of us who are in Christ. But then we look at the means that he's using to get us there, and sometimes it's ugly. It's ugly. I mean... He says in verse 7, he says, I form light and create darkness. Didn't he say that? But why the darkness, God? Why does the path to glory involve so much humiliation? Why does the path to completion involve so much frustrating incompleteness? Why does the path to Christ's likeness involve so much painful discipline, so much waiting, so much unfulfilled desire? Why does this path to eternal, unbreakable joy involves so much sorrow. And that's just our own lives. Then we look around and we see the suffering of others. We see sometimes unfathomable darkness that God has chosen to ordain, that he has allowed. And we say, but why God? And it's good to cry out to God with these struggles. It's good to cast our cares on him. But the problem is when we forget Who's the creator and who's the creature? God is the self-existent eternal one. He is the I am. That's what his name means, the Lord or Yahweh. It means the I am. There are two categories of existence, creator and creature. He is eternal. We exist in time. He is self-sufficient and independent. He is uncreated. We depend on him for our existence every moment. His existence is necessary. It has to be. Ours is contingent. We do not have to be. We have being. God is being. Our being is merely borrowed from his. We only exist 
by participating in his eternal, unchanging, perfect existence. So I ask, as one clay pot to a bunch of others, will a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Job 40, verse 2. Who are we to question God? Any intellect that we have by which we might evaluate and assess God's works and try to understand how they fit together, that is merely a derived intellect. We're borrowing from his limitless mind, his omniscient knowledge, his fathomless wisdom. So here's a tip for all my fellow created beings in the room. As created beings, there is nothing wiser than to recognize your createdness. Our whole lives should occur in the shadow of this great fundamental truth. God is God, and I am not. And the recognition of this, that God is God and I am not, this is what the wisdom literature of the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. And it forms the cornerstone of a wise and blessed human existence. So this is the problem our text introduces. Creatures questioning their creator, forgetting their place. Uh, We forget our createdness and we suppose that we could rule the world more wisely than God. That if God said, hey, you want a a shot at the throne? Think you could do better? We, We sometimes think, yeah, I think I could. And to that problem, the Lord replies with two answers. So the first answer in verses 11 to 12 is, the Holy One is free beyond challenge. The Holy One is free beyond challenge. That's verses 11 to 12. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Now, in some ways, we've already been bleeding into this answer. Even in recognizing the backwardness of of questioning our creator, we've implied certain things about his right to rule as he pleases. But that's where the Lord directly turns in these two verses. He's reminding his challengers about the creator-creature distinction and what that means about his right to rule. So in verse 11, when he calls himself the one who formed you, the one who formed Israel, he's probably referring to how he formed them as a people. Think of his promises to Abraham. Think of the Exodus, Sinai, his covenant with them. I shaped you as a people. But then in verse 12, he broadens his perspective to the more fundamental issue of his original creation of all. I also made you. Like think of Adam and Eve in the garden. I made you. I'm your creator. And in verse 12, he made both realms, heaven and earth, both realms of existence. He populated each with their own respective Inhabitants, man on earth and the host of heaven and heavens, probably referring to angels. So God's people are doubly created in this sense. We're creatures, we're created as creatures, and we're created as a people holy to the Lord, to belong to him. And so given that this is the case, the logic is simple and, and profound. The Lord who created has the freedom to rule. The Lord who created has the freedom to rule. And he makes his point with sarcasm in verse 11. And the, the second half of verse 11 kind of paraphrases like this. So it appears you have some questions about the future plans that I've just revealed. You don't like the Cyrus thing? Do you have some instructions for me? Do you want to command me what I can do to better rule my creation? Go ahead, do tell. I'm all ears. 
Of course, it's ridiculous on its face because, as we just heard, the potter is entirely free to do what he wants with his creation. No one is doubting God's power. It is the oughtness that's causing friction. It, the message here is the, that the ought is that I ought to do what I will, and you ought to accept it. If you want to understand the difference between authority and power, consider when there is a coup d'etat in a country. So let's say that the army of some country takes over the government and forms like a ruling junta, right? So what was the situation before this happened? You had one group, the government, that had authority. They had the freedom and right to rule. But then you had another group, the army, that had power, the ability to carry out their own will. And because of that discrepancy, you know, the army kind of resolved that discrepancy, right? What did they do? They used their power to steal authority. That's the distinction between power and authority. The right to rule versus the ability to do your will. Of course, in God, power and authority are not divided. In him, they're both infinite and they're one in his simple, undivided essence. But the ideas are distinct. And here, the issue is not about what God can do, what he has power to do. It's about his freedom and authority to do according to what he wills. Remember what the pot complained about the potter in verse 9. He says he has no hands. Well, look at verse 11. The, the Lord reminds Israel that they are the work of my hands. Remember, these hands made you. And then in verse 12, I stretched out the heavens. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. So it's like he's saying to them, look, I'm going to use a redeeming instrument that bothers you. You don't like Cyrus? You don't like that? No matter, says God, these hands made you and these hands have every right to rule you. These hands have every right to conduct things according to my will. Absolute authority to do that. And that means that God does not owe us a defense for his providential choices. And whenever we insist on receiving a satisfying Defense. We, we need to feel that braille on the, on the shoulder of the road. Blah, 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 blah. We, are, we are drifting. We're undermining the freedom of our creator, and we're drifting into danger. So that's our warning. Swerve back the other way. The proper stance toward our creator is humble submission. God opposes the proud. We read in 1 Peter chapter 5, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So if we find ourselves objecting to God's sovereign providential rule, the first answer is this humbling reminder, I am free beyond challenge. Now this answer rebukes us. It is admittedly a hard word. It's true, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. If this were all that God said, where would it leave us? We might be able to accept his freedom to rule, but we wouldn't rest in it. We might be able to see that God is right, that he has the right to do it, but we wouldn't think that he's good in what he does. We might accept theologically that he's free, but then view him as a cruel monster. Thankfully, God couldn't be any more different from this characterization. He is good. His ways are not just permitted, but they're deeply wise and beneficial. And God doesn't just want our grudging acceptance. He wants our wholehearted response of worship to all that he is. And for that reason, we have his second answer to our objection in verse 13. 
The second answer is the Redeemer is right beyond question. The Redeemer is right beyond question. So he says, I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all my ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you were not here last week, that might seem like it's coming out of nowhere. He's actually just continuing what he had said about Cyrus in our previous text. He's returning back to his main topic about his choice of Cyrus as the future redeemer for Israel. And the key part of especially the first uh, line of verse 13, the key phrase for us is in righteousness. And what that means is this will be the right call. This is the right thing to do. Now, a baseball manager has the authority to make the call to the bullpen to call a new pitcher and to change pitchers. He has the right to do that. That doesn't make him right. You know what I'm saying? He has the authority to make that decision. That doesn't make it the right decision. So God is saying, I'm not just free to do what I will, but I will do the right thing. It is good. It is wise. It is beneficial. What will this empowered ruler do? He will work for the good of the Lord's people. According to the Lord's covenant, he says, he will build my city and set my exiles free. It's like he's saying to them, this is for you. I'm recruiting him for you. I'm not selecting Cyrus as a way of abandoning you. I'm putting heaven and earth and foreign kings to work to leverage your blessing. This plan is not bad for God's people. It's supremely good. And, and it's like he's saying, you might not understand the means, you might not like the means, but my hands are free, and in my hands, these means cannot fail to produce the ends of your blessing, your glory, your joy. And then the fact that he says it's not for price or reward, this further defies human expectation. Usually an act of deliverance like this would cost something, cost a ransom, The Lord's way of doing it will produce surprising favor from a surprising source. Cyrus will restore Israel from the desires of his heart. It will be a free thing that he chooses to do. A heart turned like a stream of water in the Lord's hands. And so it is with us, friends. All of God's providential acts are right and good. They're good for our thriving. They're good for our security. They're good for our joy in sharing his holiness. They're good for the welfare of his church. They're good for the progress of the gospel. They're good for filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. Earlier when we looked at verses 11 and 12, I said that God has the freedom to do whatever he wants with his creation. And that's true, but we should hasten to add that his will is not arbitrary. The other side of the same coin is saying he can do whatever he wants is that what he wants to do is always good and right. That he's constrained by nothing but his own unending righteousness and his own bounty and his own wisdom. So the first answer from God was to rebuke and correct us. Do not question the freedom of the potter. But then the second answer is comfort. It is an invitation to rest in the bounty of God's providential ways. The fact is we do not have the slightest clue of all that God is weaving together with the tapestry of history and the events in our lives. And what we can see now and what we can know now, these are mere scraps of truth. They are mere glimmers of the picture. We know in part, but as the Apostle Paul assures us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, one day we will know in full, 
even as we are fully known. One day in glory, with hindsight and with purity of heart and with perfect union with God in conformity to his righteous character, we will have a better view. We'll have some elevation. The fog will be lifted and we'll be able to gaze back at the tapestry that God weaved with his providence. And in the depths of our heart, we will resonate in agreement with his goodness. I'm not saying we'll understand it all. God's wisdom is forever. It's, it's, it's unsearchable. It's infinite. We won't ever understand all of what God himself knows and thinks. But I am saying we'll see enough to affirm the goodness of his ways with our entire heart and soul. You may be familiar with the time that Jesus and his disciples encountered a man blind from birth in John chapter 9. And the disciples see this disabled man and they struggle to put his disability into a grid that enables them to make sense of it in relation to how they understand God's justice. They're trying to fit that puzzle piece. And they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer blows apart their simplistic categories. He says, basically his answer is that God is a master artist whose purposes go far deeper than these disciples are thinking. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Author N.D. Wilson launches off of this as a diving board as he's considering the problem of evil. I'm going to read kind of a lengthy quote as he meditates on these things using this kind of this metaphor of artwork. He says, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned, this little bit of black oil paint or its parent elements, that it would be used by Rembrandt to do the dark, scary bits beneath the windmill? If you are a glop of blue paint, blessed to be sitting in the sky overlooking Van Gogh's sunflowers, are you there by any effort or righteousness of your own? Why are you not more grateful? And he continues in the voice of a skeptic saying, In a world with evil, God is either not all powerful or he is not all good. Are these the only options? Or he is Shakespeare, Rembrandt, Botticelli, Dostoevsky, Van Gogh with both ears, <laughs> Michelangelo, Vivaldi, Robert Johnson, N.C. Wyeth, and Gary Larson rolled into one. Our art is tiny in comparison to his. He is infinite. And the narrative of this universe, the song of this universe, the epic of this universe, the still frames of this universe on every level, from quarks to galaxies, reflect his self, his character, his loves, his hates, his mercies, his judgments, his kindnesses, and his wraths. This universe is a portrait in motion, a compressed portrait in motion, a miniature, inevitably stylized, for it is trying to capture the infinite. The galaxies are each one fraction of a syllable in a haiku of the ultimate. End quote. God is a master artist, and he uses darkness and he uses light. And the work of art that he's creating is infinitely beyond us, but it's beautiful. We can't see it all at once, but if we could, and when we do see more of it than we can see now, the very sight of what he's done with history with this world and with our lives, will instantly vindicate itself. The sight of the beauty of his artistry, one side of it will go, oh, oh, I see. I see why each part had to be there. I see. The questions will be over. You are good 
and do good. Psalm 119, 68. How are we to respond to the righteousness and goodness of God's providential ways? For those of you here who aren't yet Christians, who haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, consider in verse 13 these phrases, my city, my exiles. All of history and the entire orchestration of heaven and earth is bent toward the blessing of a particular group of people. And that is the people of God. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 And God put all things under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all to the church. Ephesians 1.22 he rules all things for a people. And if you're in Christ by faith, you're a part of God's people. And all of his providential ways are for you. But if you're outside of Christ, you're an outsider to God and his people. And he doesn't call you his own. And he doesn't promise you good. In fact, he only promises you a future of wrath and fury as a just punishment for your sins. So if you want these glorious answers to be yours, if you want the unquestionable goodness of God's ways to be bent toward your eternal welfare, come and get inside the ark of safety. Be united to Christ by faith. Trust him to be your savior from sin. And through him, be reconciled to God. For those of us who already know Christ, what is God's takeaway for us? Toward what do the righteousness and goodness of God's ways point us? It is an invitation to rest. It's an invitation to hide under the shadow of a protector who is far greater than you. It's an invitation to cast your cares at his feet. We heard earlier from 1 Peter chapter 5 about how God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And we heard about how we should therefore humble ourselves under his mighty hand. But we dare not stop before hearing the next verse. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The sovereign, all-powerful, entirely free creator cares for you, Christian. He gave his precious son to redeem you. Cast your cares on him. Rest assured that he can handle them. Rest assured that they matter to him. And it's true, we're sometimes bothered at what he's doing in his providence. That's normal, that's okay to be bothered by these things. We're weak creatures with limited knowledge. It is a burden. But instead of rebelling and creating cosmic insubordination, no, we, t we take our burden and we yield it to him, to his wise and loving care. And we say, God, I don't get it. I truly don't get it. What on earth are you doing here? But I yield it to you. You are good and you do good. You are wise. You are right in all that you do. You didn't spare your own son but gave him up for me and I know you won't withhold from me any lesser good. So even if I can't see what you're doing or why it's good, help me to rest in you. Help me to trust in you and wait for that day when I can see my friends, our God's reign is free beyond challenge and good beyond question. As created beings, let us never forget our place before God 
the way that he rules history and the way that he ordains things for our lives. It can deeply puzzle us. It can disturb us. But the God who made us is free to do what he will. The hands that formed us have the right to rule us as they please. And the wisdom that made heaven and earth has all competence to carry out his sovereign plan. The one whose justice soars like mountains is right in all that he does. And the one who is good does good. For us, sinners that he's reconciled to himself by the blood of his son, we can rest in his care with every assurance that he will use all of these twists and turns to bring us to a glorious end, to bring us to the fulfillment of the good work that he's begun in us. Let's pray. Our God, we marvel at your authority. We marvel at your power. At you, the creator who made us and on whom we entirely depend. We pray that you would keep in our hearts ever this frame of mind, this fear of you that rightly orders our thoughts under you and says, you are God. Please don't let us forget that. Please keep us in that humble state before you. And we pray that we would not only see your power and authority, but your goodness, that we would see, especially in the way you've given your son for us, that we would see all your ways toward us being peace and bounty and blessing, even though we can't fit it together so much of the time. Please help us to cling to your promises. Help us to be people who pray, who, who bring these things to you with all the confusion, all the weakness we're, we're feeling, and just bring it to you with trust. And if there's any in this room who doesn't know Christ, we pray that they would see how utterly lost they are outside of him and how wonderfully good it is to know him, to trust him, and to be reconciled to you through him. We pray that you'd work new life in their hearts even now. Do great things in our midst through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.